There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey there, listener. Jeremy here, one of the co-hosts of Sick Boy Podcast. I'm so glad you found us. Today marks our five-year podcast anniversary. And what better way to celebrate than by officially announcing that we are now a CBC Podcast. If you are new to the show and happen to enjoy this episode, well, you might be happy to know that we have five years worth of episodes that you can go through and binge to your heart's content. So to our OG listeners and to our new listeners, here's to another five years. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Jay. He's in recovery from alcohol addiction. Let's talk about it. Well, uh, this is uh, this is gonna be this is gonna be a really interesting conversation because it's the first time in a in a hefty chunk of time where we've dived into the the world of addiction. Um, and gosh, man, I don't even remember the last time uh, we've talked about addiction. It's it's been a it's been a a long a while, yeah. long time. Yeah, uh, but we're time. we're chatting with our new uh, thinking, our new friend Jay, yeah. who uh, Halifax uh, Halifax native or or so oh, yeah. you were born and raised in Halifax, but you're now living in the uh, the the wonderful and exciting city of Toronto, Ontario. True, um, true. How's how's life? <laughs> how's how is how is Toronto treating you? Um, I got it's. I guess you know what. Let me re- let me reel that back. Let me start with. How are you doing in your your uh, your journey of of uh, addiction and recovery? Are you are you on the path of recovery, or is addiction something that you're still in, like kind of in the throes of as we speak? Uh, no, I've been sober for three three and a half years, almost four, I think, in February. Uh, so I'm I'm definitely in uh, I'm definitely in it. Yeah. In recovery, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Congrats. Congratulations. Are we? Are we talking? What? Do, what kind of addiction are we talking here? We were. We. Uh, alcoholism, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. My main. My main uh, substance is alcohol, and then on top of that, you know, the, the regular work, money, everything else in between, <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> all the other isms that come. Right. Right before we started recording, we were talking about uh, yoga and. All four of us are yoga teachers. We, I, I was mentioning that I did my training in Rishikesh, and I asked you if you've ever been there, and you said you were about to go, but your your doctor pulled you out of that. Was that yeah. did that have to do with uh, your addiction? Uh, it, it had more to do with my mental health stability at the time. In in what ways? <clears throat> um, when I was like nine months, ten months soberish, I went and got a addictions trauma specialist uh, here in Toronto because I was really crashing out 
uh, hard again, but I wasn't drinking. So uh, I had turned to outside help. So um, I had kind of started messing with yoga. And then I did, a, I did my 200-hour training. And then I wanted to go do a Nada Yoga training. Nada Yoga is like the yoga philosophy of, of vibration, which I study quite a bit as a musician and a player. Um, <laughs> he was like... He just was like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. You're still going to crash. And then three days later, I crashed. So it what, made sense. What does um, crashing look like? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. I've always kind of called it a crash. A, a crash for me is like, um, it's like a, a bout of depression that I don't have control over. Mm. That uh, would run me, like run me into the ground real bad. So, so like for you being kind of 10 months into this, I know we're, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves quite a bit here, but, but like being 10 months into, uh, being sober and, and not using substances as a coping mechanism, you weren't, you didn't, you weren't drinking again, but you were kind of facing this, you know, mental health challenge where things were starting to feel like they were spiral spiraling out of control a little bit. Well, things had been spiraling out of control for like, you know, five years. Um, okay. When I moved to mm-hmm. Toronto, I was still in the music industry full time. Um, and I was still drinking a lot. <clears throat> uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was fully alcoholism that took me into recovery and the program and everything else. It was my mental health teamed with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could have physically kept drinking. Um, I mean, I tried to kill myself for a few years by drinking, and it's hard. It was hard for me to do. I was still young. Uh, I wasn't an everyday drinker. I was a hard binge drinker, Mm. Um, which sometimes people say is worse because of the amount that you're consuming at at one time. And the way that I was drinking was just violent. Right. Um, So I physically could have kept going, I think, I think. But I would have – my mental state was was like – completely uncontrollable it was like a perfect storm of mental health Where, fuckery and and then like 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 was the drinking a coping mechanism due to the mental health or was that was a drinking just also um yeah like was it a tool you were you were kind of like using to to kind of carry you through the the those crashes mm. or 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 was it uh was it a crutch i guess um, I, I usually say this, I don't want it to sound like it's taken the wrong way, but in a way alcohol works because I would get super depressed. Uh, if I wasn't to drink at that time, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. Cause I would always go drink. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. and when I say it works, obviously it doesn't work in the long run, but if, mm-hmm. if I'm really low, and I want to not be low because I have to go to a club and I have to work because I'm also addicted to work and I'm also addicted to money. And I also don't know what's going on in my head. A good way to quickly get away from that is to black mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and blacking out be, is like, came, it's like a science. Like I know how to black myself out very quickly. I know how to do it properly so that I can DJ for five and a half hours. I know like different ways and different levels that I can get drunk to maintain making the money and doing the work that I had to right. do. But it was, 
it was a useful tool in a way in the very short term to get away from my mm. mind. Almost like a, like providing like a numbness to the mental pain that you were going through. Right. Yeah. The mental, uncon- like um, the lack of control is the way I would kind of state that. Right. Jay, where does, uh, where does all this, yeah. where does all this start for you? I know that there's no, uh, I know that there's no one answer as to like why people become, um, dependent on alcohol or any substance really. I mean, there's a, there's different circumstances and, 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 uh, situations that kind of funnel everybody in different ways. What, what does that look like for you? Um, well, it started out really young for me, uh, I mean, I don't know how how much do we want to get into. I mean, we can get into as you, much as you're, you guys yeah, want. As much as you want to go all the way. If you want, you can open up that trench coat and show us full, full frontal nudity if you want. Give us your origin story. If you story. don't want to, that's, that's, that's totally story. okay, too. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> you know what's interesting about recovery is, like, when I first went in, I didn't know anything. I was just going insane. Mm-hmm. I was just so sad and so down. But after, the, oh, after three years and going through the step process, and we can talk about the step process too mm-hmm. if you want. Um, mm-hmm. It starts to, in a way, get interesting to look at your life. Uh, I didn't realize how young it started for me. But I, I, uh, I guess it started when I was like eight, and I went to curling, and there was a coach there that molested me like multiple times. Um, and that's something I didn't really think about a lot in my life because it kind of like pushed back in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I realize now the influence that that played mm. on my mind mm-hmm. and my, my consciousness and the way that I lived my life and made decisions. Was that, was that uh, incident something that, you know, you say you pushed it away. Was that something that, that you, you almost like truly completely forgot until until some some point when you were a little bit older when when all of a sudden it was like you made that realization like holy fuck that happened that was a thing that happened to me or or was it something that you always kind of knew had happened but sort of just like brushed it off to the side like some sort of bad dream this is an interesting conversation because i'm like kind of right in the middle of working through that side of it right now. Also, um, Jay, we most certainly don't yeah, yeah. have to, it, like, we don't have to dig into this stuff. You know, like, like, oh, like, no, it's yeah, all good. All right, you it's just, all you good. just say, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're driving this bus. So, <laughs> so we're just, we're just, no, like, it's we're all the good annoying to kids me. in the back asking all the questions. You, <laughs> and, and I want to say, too, like, you don't have to feel like you have all the answers, yeah, even yeah, if yeah, you want to totally. talk through, like, where you're at mm-hmm. now. You know, yeah, and that's, that's interesting that's because what, I don't really, um, Jeremy, like you said, uh, it is something that I didn't intentionally throw in the back of my head. It wasn't one event. It was probably a year of this happening. And it, it had escalated, too. It had escalated from, like, you know, touching to being filmed to, like, different weird things happening. Um, and I never really did think about it intentionally not forgetting about it uh, but in the time feeling obviously weird but when you're that young like it's very i don't know you know it's like i mean i can't really remember that was what 20 i'm 32 yeah. now mm-hmm. so that was 20 some years ago i mean you don't really know anything like you're you're 
as a, as a, as a kid that young, you're really like, you are completely reliant on the world around you and the people around you to like Mm -hmm. tell you and show you what is right. What is, what is, you know, quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. And so like, there's how, like the, how are you supposed to know? know, Exactly. And I mean, if you read the science on childhood sex abuse and what it does to the brain, uh, it's really quite fascinating. I mean, when I say I'm working on it now, that's kind of what I'm getting into. I'm trying to understand. I, I worked through a lot of that kind of thing with my doctor, trying to understand oh how it played out in my life. Ooh. Is it like the is it like the resurrection of some of those things that that you know? I I'm thinking of I'm thinking of this in the context of 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 some experiences that I've had where like you don't have, where where. You don't know what's going on in the moment. It's not until it's not until something is like said and done and like gone by and and then you reflect later that you realize like holy shit that was actually connected to this and this and this and like it was this gradual process and it led me into this. Like was was the was the abuse when you look back on it like was it was it like a resurrection of of the was it the resurrection of those of those memories or anything that kind of played into played into getting into drinking or like the or or not getting into drinking because like <laughs> I mean, fuck. Who did? Who doesn't drink when they're like yeah, in man. high school? We're from, we're or from Halifax. Like, everybody, like, <laughs> yeah, we're from Halifax, man. Everyone's yeah. drinking like yeah, a fish all, all the time, and and that line is so that line is so blurry. And like, I I I read something I read something on Facebook or Instagram not too long ago of a, of somebody that I knew really well in high school or pretty well in high school, and she was basically like, I've been, you know, I'm I'm in recovery now, and and. And my alcoholism was like working in the bar mm. scene and, and not realizing that that's really Super prevalent in the bar work, scene. Like, for sure. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it obviously it makes sense, but, but you're just, it's yeah. just like the constant thing and how, how something evolves over time from being something that isn't an issue to something that ultimately right. is. I guess my question has kind of gone off the rails there by getting into something else, but, um, but where does in retrospect with the clarity of of hindsight where is it you know is it the high school drinking that is the inception is it like the first drink you have or is it like the three years later when something Mm. like that you know i always think about the sex abuse early in life as like this the start the first push of the snowball and then there's patterns now that were i know this now that were placed in my mind after that for instance, um, if later in life there was a man who was uh, had power over me like a boss, I didn't mm-hmm. understand why I resented them, but I also wanted to make them happy. Mm. So I didn't. Mm. I never got that. I, uh, you know, things like I've never, I've never really had a relationship work that well. Uh, I've always had a guard up. I don't. I've never really liked getting that close to people. I have a real trust issue with people. Mm. And then, I, yeah, I started drinking in high school, like most of us, I think, probably do. It was fun, you know, for a while. I liked drinking. Um, mm. But when I say it's the snowball, because now other things start happening. Um, I started drumming at a very high level at a young age. And by the time I was 18, I had like my left arm was like a mess. So I had to quit the style of drumming that I was doing. What was the, what was the, style, what was the style of drumming you were up to? Uh, I was playing in like pipe, uh, pipe and drum corps. 
So I was and like was going it, to world championships and is that like is that well, like uh, was, stomp was the yard? Is that like that shit? Oh, wait, or no, hold on. What's that? No, that's like American okay, style. Okay, okay, drumline. Yeah, yeah, yeah drumline. Yeah, <laughs> yeah drumline. Yeah, <laughs> stomp <laughs> the yard. <laughs> was um was the was the injury to your arm just through like an overuse injury of of just playing the drums too much and playing at that level? Yeah, because I was playing like eight hours a day. Because right. I was 14, but I'm playing with 50 year old men. That sounds like me during COVID. When I was jerking off that much. I was getting, yeah, I was yeah. getting like crazy. <laughs> you get tendonitis. Super fucked up arm cramps. It was bad. It was really, it was really My bad. My arm yeah. was at 90 yeah. degrees. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do look like Popeye now. Okay. So you know, there's a plus side. Jeez. But when I say it snowballs, like you know, my, my dad died of cancer when I was 22, mm. and uh, and I was away for a lot of that. I was on the road. And when, by the time I came home, he was essentially dead. And, like, the last conversation I had with my father was him saying, we need to have one last conversation. And then the next time I saw him, I was holding his hand, and it was like, there's this point right before somebody dies, at least in his state, in cancer, where it's like, he can't move. He's not, he's not really there, but he's still breathing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was the last time mm-hmm. I saw him, you know. So after that happened, um, I mean, to add on to everything, you never take care of anything. Like, emotions at this point yeah. were... I was like, no way I'm getting into that. Um, so after that is when I started to crash, actually. That's when I started to get my, like, my mental, uh, my mental lapses. And I remember my first one. What yeah. did that look like? I, was, I had a girlfriend at the time, and I was at her house. I woke up at 2 in the morning, and I just, I had to, lay, like, I just kind of got up and walked out in a way. It was like, I, I just... It was one of the first times I felt like I wasn't in control of my mind, mm. like consciously not in control of my mind. Were there physical um, manifestations happening as well? Like, you know, like were you, I was just talking to my friend last night um, and she, she's going through some like anxiety and she was tell, t- telling me about this mm. like shoulder pain and like chest pain that she's having. And I was like, I, it, it, I found it so fascinating because, you know, our emotions are so, so, so deeply tied to our physical body. And like, so to hear mm. her say that she's having like physical pain due to her anxiety is just like something that it, it, it kind of blows my mind a bit. Where in these like crashes, do you feel, is there a physical, is there a physical sense to it as well? Or is it mostly this sort of mental fuckery? No, there's definitely, there's that mind-body connection, which I've actually kind of embraced a little bit now in recovery because I do like somatic meditations, arising emotions, feeling them in the body because I'm more interested in it now than I am uh, scared or nervous mm. about it. But I, be- I became to learn, like I knew there was like a line that I was getting. It was like, okay, I'm starting to feel a little bit sad or there's a certain thought pattern happening. And then once I crossed the line, I was gone. And I knew I was going to get really cold. So I'd put on a bunch of clothes. I'd get under my covers. Uh, and I could be there from anywhere for, you know, six hours to two or three days. Wow. Like, it depends. This, wow. this, this continued on without drinking, uh, which really taught me that the substance is the tip of the iceberg as far as addiction goes. Sure. Yeah. It's, that was the lesson that I learned. It's much more nuanced. Very, very layered. I, yeah, I mean, to, yeah. speaking of the drinking, like, when did when did that start? And because I know you you had mentioned earlier that like there was, you, you you tend to you tend to you tended to be a uh, binge drinker, so it was like really mm-hmm. hardcore 
you know, violently just like slamming down as much as you can kind of in a short period of time, I take it. Um, did it, was, like, was it always like that? Or when you first started like turning to the bottle, um, how, what did that look like for you in those early days? Uh, well, like I said, I started in high school. It was more fun. Yeah. I definitely loved getting loaded. I loved getting loaded. I didn't really know why until after my dad died. Uh, and then I realized, like, that blacking out made me feel better. It's like, you know, when you take that first drink and it, it feels warm when it goes down the throat and your, your stress is removed. Mm. It's just like, I was, I loved that so much because it's the only way I could relax. So once I've, I was 22 and remember at this time I'm working in clubs. So, uh, I'm drinking when I'm at work and I'm drinking when I'm not at work. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. by the time I was, I've been sober for three and a half years. So I got sober when I was 28, but by the time I was 24 was when I started drinking alone. I think mm-hmm. started blacking out alone, started drinking things like bottles of wine, stuff that would intentionally, that I knew would work quickly. It became like a science, you know, when you first started drinking on your own, um, I imagine that like if I was, if I was going to have a drink on my own at the end of the day and I was feeling, you know, like I had a particularly tough day and decided that I was going to have a glass of wine or whatever, you know, that might feel like a bit of a, a stress reliever to me, but I would never view that as, as being problematic and mainly because I, I, I don't identify with being an alcoholic, but when you first started, uh, drinking on your own, was that something that you saw as like, hey, this is a casual drink at the end of the day and this is okay? Or like immediately was it like, hey, this is what I need to feel better right now and this is definitely a coping mechanism? Well, I rarely had one drink on my own. So that was probably a good sign. Um, sure. The other thing is like, I think people have a few drinks on their own to relax. Um but like, yeah, I'd rarely have one drink on my own and I would rarely stop until either the booze was gone or I was gone. Um, mm-hmm. And there would be a ton of depression and a lot of suicidal thoughts probably intertwined in that one session. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever, and- did you ever romanticize, did you ever romanticize drinking in the way that, um, in the way that like art, like art, there is a lot of romanticism around, especially like in like the like music and writing and the artist world around you know about around like being being totally you know blackout drunk or whatever whether it's cocaine or any like whatever providing the like state of mind that creates genius mm. and, you know that mm-hmm. sort of mentality yeah 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 i've i've played all of those games i've played you know the sad artist thing um I love Elizabeth Gilbert's writing often because she speaks a lot against that. If you guys know who Elizabeth Gilbert is, the author. No, I don't. My, she, yeah, Bridie, my wife, is like massive Elizabeth Gilbert. Fan. Yeah, like yeah. in Big Magic in her books and stuff, she talks about creativity a lot and how the <laughs> sadness and the darkness is really a myth of creativity. Uh, I definitely like played all those mind games. Like any kind of mind game that I could think of, I probably played on myself. Yeah. It's like, it's all, it was all any, like any excuse, you know, Mm. any excuse to be able to be like, oh, it was a hard day. It was a hard week. 
Or yeah. it was like, oh, I graduated college. Now I'm going to black out for a week. Or like, yeah. you know. I remember, like I remember. Good, bad. I remember reading uh, Stephen King's on writing in high school and and him sort of detailing the he was like, big on substance abuse, yeah. like mm-hmm. that he and, and in a in in a seemingly sort of I don't know if he's sober now um, or not, but in a seemingly like glorified way, it, like in a you know like I would have never written Carrie if I could remember writing right. it, you know yeah. and. Right. And and I remember that sticking with me as a as a kid and like and you know not too long after that, um, sort of thinking about about, um, I never I was I was never was one to drink by myself. But I remember but I remember if I were to think about getting drunk by myself, it always had a romantic idea around it to yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can relate to that, and I I think there's actually something to be said, kind of. For that argument, I never want to promote substance or anything, but, you know, like, if you look at music in the 70s, like, psychedelics and mushrooms Mm -hmm. had a Mm -hmm. huge play on what we know as music. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there is something about creativity and things like psilocybin or mushrooms. Um, I I mean, I, I never really oppose anything whatever works for somebody as you know as long as they're not hurting themselves or anybody mm-hmm. else mm-hmm. um so I, I think that that's just not my experience that's not that's not why i used booze i i booze did help me get through a lot of nights don't get me wrong i don't even like being in crowds you know like mm-hmm. i just learned that when i got sober man it's like <laughs> you're like i hate this <laughs> i spent my whole life in like packed clubs and yeah. traveling around the country with like pretty popular musicians who pull a lot of crowds and like i don't even like any of it i don't <laughs> like being around people like huge crowds of people so mm-hmm. you know covid must have been awesome for you <laughs> yeah you know what i was talking i was talking to a friend and uh i actually said this to my brother too i was like i'm smashing this covid thing because isolation like i've been doing that for 10 years you know yeah, yeah. so like this is just like regular for me yeah. S- speaking of having people around you when you started to binge drink more and more, were people bringing it up to you as something that was problematic in your life or or in your relationships? Uh, pro- yeah, in relationships. <laughs> um, yeah, not so much family though, because I I hid from family a lot. I mean, I just told my family two weeks ago that I was molested twenty four years ago. Whoa, Jesus, only two whoa. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, like those are parts of childhood wow. sex abuse that we don't think about it's like mm. you have to tell i had to tell my mom like wow. oh yeah 24 years ago i was molested multiple times by a coach and that's that's why everything that's where everything kind of started mm-hmm. and you do you I mean? do you can you like tell us a little bit about what that conversation was like with your mom like being conscientious that it was only two weeks ago yeah. Um, if it's not something that you want to talk about, but I, but I am really curious because I feel like, you know, that is a, an incredibly difficult conversation to have and incredibly, incredibly difficult for sure. But also like, I, I can also, I, I mean, I would hope, I, I would hope that it was also an incredibly healing, uh, um, experience mm. for you, you know, like, I, I mean, 
you know, it's like one of those things we, we talk so much about how, how important communication is with the people in our lives and like meaningful communication is like, is the key to, to, to forgiveness and to happiness and to, and to, um, you know, to like, to moving forward and, and making progress. Um, well, the, what, like what, yeah, I, I mean, to, to Brian's question, like what was that process like, what was that conversation like for you? I, I can't even fucking mm. imagine what it was like for your mother. Yeah. Uh, like you said, communication is super important, but it's something I haven't, I didn't do until, I mean, I still have trouble with communication sometimes with people mm. who are, uh, close to me. I, I'm pretty like, I pretty, I hold things pretty tight to the chest usually. Um, so speaking out about things is, is a new experience, but the conversation with mom was, uh, it was quite quiet, you know. Mm-hmm. I, um, I guess mom's like she's experienced a lot in the last three years because I I did everything in Toronto. So let's say I, I've been sober for like over three and a half years, and I've probably only seen her two or three times within that. The rest mm-hmm. of the time, it's like some phone conversations, but I'm mostly talking to sponsors, or I'm talking to my doctor. You know, it was suggested that I don't tell family for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. to save to save whatever may come back from that conversation because I was still trying to work through it with my doctor. Sure. So yeah. if you start piling things on, it starts to get confusing. Mm. And when you t- put addiction on top of that and substance abuse, it, it becomes trickier. And we can talk more about that too if you want. But um, it, it was quiet, you know, but kudos to her. She dealt with it quite well. Um She's had a lot thrown at her in the last three years, and and I think that, uh, yeah, she just needed time to process. I mean, I'm sure she's still processing because it, it's like an unfathomable thing. You know, you hear about that in yeah. the news. You hear about that mm-hmm. in – but I, in my experience, I mean, I speak at AA meetings a lot, and uh, listen, it's not as unfathomable as we think it is. Like childhood sex abuse is a raging issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that because every time I share about it, like I get five to eight people in one meeting who come up to me and say they have the same experience. Let's say half of them are men. Um, wow. so, but it seems unfathomable from, you know, a middle class life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah so it seems it separate in, in terms it's of separate. Yeah. In, in terms of your relationship um, with your mom going through the, the experiences that you have with addiction, um, even the trauma uh, associated with like losing your dad when you were 22. Uh, how, how did that affect your relationship with your mom? And, and just to get some like context and what it was like to have that conversation a couple of weeks ago, like was your relationship with your mom fairly tumultuous throughout that time or, or was it pretty, was she somebody who was kind of there for you throughout the course of all of these challenges that you've had to deal with? Yeah. She's, it's never been tumultuous. I've never had that relationship with, uh, my mother especially, but it, it's just distant. Um, like I said, I hid a lot, man. I like my, my family didn't really know much. Um, 
so even the fact that like, oh yeah, I, I, I'm going to AA meetings, you know, and I went for three months and then I relapsed and my relapse put me in the hospital. It was a, it was a nasty relapse experience, but, um, you know, they won't, they wouldn't let me out of the hospital alone. So I couldn't just leave. So they were looking for phone numbers. So like they called my mom, you know, like a hospital mm-hmm. in Toronto, like, and they told her, like they told her, <laughs> they told her kind of what had went down. Um, so it wasn't tumultuous. It's just, it was, I think it was just distant. So I, I try mm-hmm. to work on that. Um, but at the same time, um, there's an element here of like, I need to work and talk to people who know what's going on. I need to talk to my sponsor. I need to talk to my doctor. Uh, it's kind of like, I have to chop down those things first personally. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that kind of went off into detention, but no, no, that, that's uh, I feel yeah. like that, that sheds a lot of light on, on the experience. I, I, I'm curious about how, because you, you've talked about this uh, experience of being in recovery and, and talking with your sponsors and working with your doctors, but to go back to like getting into how you got there, um, at what point mm. do, do things start to, you know, s- snowball out of control mm. uh, and, and, and end up with you actually, you know, either in the hospital or seeking help or, or what, what happened there? Um, my depression had escalated to a point where I was losing complete control. Suicide had moved from a consideration to a real option, to a real option. And I, I had begun to lo- lose control so much that when I was drinking, uh, I mean, I didn't really care if I lived or died anymore. Mm-hmm. I'd say for two years uh, before I stopped drinking, it just didn't matter. Because I, my highs and lows were insane. You know, I could be elated about something. Five minutes later, I could be completely suicidal and like shaking. Uh, it, it had just become. I, I had become completely powerlessness without realizing, the powerlessness itself. Um, and I was just pounding, man. I was really going for it. Uh. And it just kind of ended. Somebody suggested, like, you're out of control. And I had kind of tapped out. Um, you know, I I always talk about this experience. When One day when I was really, I was, I was really thinking about cutting it off. I was like, I was just over it. Uh, there's something, if being suicidal brought me one thing, it was this, that one day I thought, and I don't know how this came into my mind, but I thought, if I can just kill myself and all this is going to end, if I can just shoot myself or sit in my bathtub and cut my wrists open and, and let it end that way, there must be something I can do to end this but stay alive. If it's as easy as just popping myself in the head with a bullet to end pain, there must be a way to do it while I'm alive. Hmm. And I don't know why I thought that, but from that came, I didn't care about myself. I didn't care about my life. So I'm just going to drop it all right now. So I just stopped working. I stopped everything and I started going to AA every day. That was right after my relapse. 
The relapse, like I said, was nasty. I was begging the ambulance driver to kill me. I said I'd give them 10 grand cash. It was like a whole, it was mayhem. Wow. Uh, yeah, the nurse was like trying to put me into the psych ward. It was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, one of my best friends lives here in Toronto, and he came and got me out of there. Um, and after that, I just gave up. I gave up. Like, I, I couldn't. I couldn't do it anymore. There was no point. Like, what's the point? You know what I mean? It's like I don't even enjoy waking up. Like, every time I woke up, it was just like, I got to do this again. Like, damn it. Uh, so that's what it looked like. It was just giving. It was just giving up. What was the, like, what was the decision? Um, like, why AA? Was there, was there yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean... I, I don't know what all of the different options would be. I know, you know, I know AA through, you know, whatever, through the, through the social upbringing that I've had. Like, you know, I th- I feel like everyone knows what AA is to right. some degree, but like, what was the, um, did you know someone who went through the program or, or, or were you just like a shot in the dark? I don't know what the fuck this is really. I'm just going to give it a, give it a go. Yeah. AA, um, you hear sometimes in recovery rooms, people say they're actually grateful for being an alcoholic because of the life it gives them now. Alcoholism took me to AA. Um, otherwise, I don't know what I would have done. Like, that's a good question. Without drinking, I mean, you, I've, I've been to see doctors, you know what I mean? But, like, mm-hmm. that never worked for me. Not until I found the last one that I worked with. But um, it was just the drinking so I was like, okay, well, I got to stop this drinking somehow. Like, I don't know how to do that, so I'm just going to go to AA. And I went for three months, and then I relapsed. But after the relapse, I really went. I, found, I went to this room that's down the road from me. Uh, it's like a small room. It holds probably 40 people. They have a meeting every day at 1. Uh, and, you know, I'll say there's a reason I moved to Toronto, and it was not to become a successful musician. It was to find a really strong recovery program because mm. recovery in Toronto is like wild mm. there. You can get to, I could hit four meetings a day and walk there if I wanted to. Oh, well. So shouts out to that program for sure. Um, are they all, are, are they all, um, are you guys hearing me? Okay. Yeah. Yep. yep. Okay. Are they all, um, are they all organized by like is AA is AA set up as a as an organization or are the are they like segmented segmented communities um, that have like organized themselves separately? Like when you say you can go to four meetings, is that like you know are you seeing the same people at four meetings? Are they the same organizers, um, or right. or are these just all kind of like individual individually run things that that are happening you know all over the city? Right. Yeah, I just want to side note this conversation that there's 12 traditions in AA, so I have to be careful about what I say because uh, I don't break the traditions. Um, essentially, there, it's like a it's like a self-run organization, from my understanding. I've not got, I've never gotten into the administration side of that pro of the program uh, because I've just been trying to get clean and get my head straight. Mm. Um, what are their finances like? tell me about their accounting process yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) um but each group is self-run kind of like its own thing and then uh there is like there's like a um a head self-run group and then that controls more groups and then it breaks off into segments of the city uh in a city of toronto i think there's like 600 a week 
So there's a lot. Wow. It's like an underground well. world. It's very like very insane. You know, we're all yoga teachers here. It's like uh, I've heard great things from yoga teachers, but man, the stuff you hear in those rooms was like saved my life. You know, mm-hmm. people well, can save can your you, knife with one sentence. Are Are you able to? Um, you know, all I know from AA is uh, is some stuff, some conversations that I've had with my my father in law who just recently passed away. And um, and also through uh, film and television. Mm. Um, what 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 has your experience been like in in those meetings? Like, what does an AA meeting uh, look like? Yeah, so they're different. I mean, depending on what group you go to, a lot of them there's one person from the group who will operate the meeting, make sure things don't go off the rails. Uh, in a way, they're quite strictly run for that very purpose that it's a safe uh, place to very share openly. Uh, one person will run it. Everybody kind of sits down, faces that way. There's readings. You read the 12 steps. You read the 12 traditions. You read the serenity prayer, uh, which is a prayer that helped me a lot in early recovery. Um, and then depending if it's a closed or open meeting, you know, open meetings anybody can go to. Closed meetings are for those who are trying to quit alcohol. So a closed meeting is, is usually what I hit. I mean, I do go to open meetings, too. Meetings right now are all online, so it's different. But uh, closed meetings, you usually read some text, and then the floor opens up for sharing. Sometimes there's a time limit on the sharing. Sometimes the person running the meeting sets a kind of time limit so people don't rant on. Mm. Uh, it, it's, it's, not like, uh, in, it's not like insanity and uncontrolled. It's actually... Um, quite regulated from my experience do you mm-hmm. do you have to share when you first go or is it like you can just sit there and silently nah. observe and and or do they encourage you to to talk about yourself that's a interesting question some groups depending it also depends on who your sponsor is um uh, some groups actually restrict sharing if you're under a year of sobriety and okay that might seem very strict and mean in a way, let's say. You can always share with your sponsor or share when the meeting's over. Um, but the purpose of that is that when you go into AA, they're trying to save your life. And the simple way that it was put to me is that I'm sitting in an AA meeting and I'm 28 years old. I obviously don't know what I'm doing. So I need to be quiet and I need to listen to people who have been sober for 10, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I knew I didn't have control over my mind. My meeting wasn't like that. I, I shared. Um, I mean, when I first started sharing, it was just rambling. <laughs> it was just like, yeah. like I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm freaking out. Uh, you know, everything and everything else. But So it depends on the meeting. And it depends on your program that you're deciding to work with, whoever you decide to work with. How do they, how do you, how how do do they assign sponsor? you? Yeah. <laughs> they don't assign you a sponsor. Uh, you pick a sponsor. So the way, I mean, I can only talk from my experience, but I was always told to listen to a lot of people speak. Get somebody who has some of the same experience as you and somebody that you trust. Now, that's an interesting thing because a lot of people, when they go into a recovery program, don't trust anybody. Mm. Like, I'm not the only person who's been molested and had a dad die. You know, I've heard crazy, crazy stories Mm -hmm. about long lines of traumatic experiences so to trust somebody is hard 
but I needed to do something because I was just I was too out of control so I had to do something so you know I I picked the person who I work with and you have you you're going to tell this person everything there's yeah. not there's is not going to be a limited relationship because that's for me that's very dangerous to not talk about everything cuz then there's something left in your subconscious that 10 days down the road something's going to happen and you're going to think about it and that's going to get you drunk Sick Boy Podcast. We'll be right back after this very short break. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts in terms of um in terms of relapsing after three months um i'm not sure what the the statistics are around how often people who start their journey uh into like a program like aa i'm not sure what the statistics are of how often people relapse but i feel like it's it can be fairly common and i imagine that it's really challenging mentally to to feel like you know, like you fucked up. How do you, like, how do you come to terms with that and accept it and, and then move on? And, and like you said, almost make this like commitment to like really take it seriously the second time. I don't know if I phrased that right, but but how do you, like, how do you, how do you come to terms with that? Um, it was just powerlessness for me. It's like you run out of cho- I ran out of choices. <laughs> I have no, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like I have a plethora of options here. It's like mm-hmm. I live alone. I'm in a basement apartment and I'm super suicidal. So it's <laughs> yeah. just like what you know, you know, it's the same thing of like <coughs> being told in early recovery by people like you can listen to me or you can't listen to me. You can work towards finding a higher power or not. But I think you've proven to yourself what happens when you don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I know. I know if I just was to not do yoga, not meditate, not try to connect with God every single day, I know what's going to happen. It's not like the, the things have gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reason why I, I asked that question is because, yeah. like, you know, I as somebody, as you being somebody who has, like, gone through that experience of feeling like oh, I fucked up and, and relapsed, but then have come out on the other side and actually then made that like next level of commitment, like to somebody who is going through the same experience Mm. and has that happened to them? Like what, what is it like, what type of strength does it require to be able to like take that, you know, take that failure and just learn from it and move forward with this new piece of information that you can apply to the next time that you try and not feel like you've been a fuck up. Oh, that's a tough question. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, for me, it was that powerless. It's just bottom, yeah. you know? Like, you've, if you've never heard of the bottom, it's essentially like, I mean, it's the bottom. When, <laughs> you can't when, go any... When can't go you... Below, you can't go below the bottom. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you can keep digging. I've already I already pulled c- over, man. I can't <laughs> yeah. pull over any further. Yeah. <laughs> I could keep digging. Um, but I was just too cooked. 
at, at, at what point does yoga come into your life? I, I know oh, that, yeah, okay. um, I know that like AA is, is a religious organization and I don't know if that's the right way to say, it, but I, th- I think it's a, it's a religious organization mm-hmm. and part, one of the tenets of the 12 steps is, is finding this higher power, right? Which is oftentimes defined as, as God, but I, I, I'm not sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it can kind of be defined as like any type of higher power or does it have to be, do they kind of like suggest that it's the Christian God during AA meetings? Right. Uh, when AA was first originated, it was definitely Christian. Okay. So I would say it was definitely a religious program. My experience in AA has not been that. My experience in AA is you could worship a doorknob for all they care, but you need a higher power. And the re and I didn't believe it the first time, but after the relapse, I I had decided step 11 talks about prayer and meditation a lot. Um, and I was never one for prayer. I'm more so now, but I was willing to meditate. So actually yoga came in later. It was Buddhism first. Um, Uh, cool. Buddhism definitely was the first thing that I got into. And I, you know, I'm like, I'm an alcoholic, so it's like, when I get into something, I'm going all the way. So I was <laughs> sure, reading all the yeah. books, I'm going to all the temples, uh, I'm going to different groups, and I'm sitting. I'm sitting twice a day at this point. Right off the bat, I was trying to sit for 20 minutes a day. I didn't have a wow. teacher, I was just reading and just got into it. Mm-hmm. Which I honestly wouldn't suggest, and I don't teach that way now. Um, so I, I feel like I kind of got away with it there. Because to just sit down when you're that crazy is like a whole thing. Yeah. Um, they do refer to God, you know, in the program, but they also refer to God in yoga. Yeah. So, you know, like the, that word can mean any. God has many faces. Hafiz always, the poet Hafiz always says God has no religion. Um, it, it's really anything. A lot of people use the group. A lot of people use their sponsor as a higher power until they kind of find that connection. There's many levels that worked at it for me. First was the ethics that came with Buddhism, which um, when I had gotten into recovery, I did not under I did not know how to live. Like I, uh, I only drank and played music, and worked for 15 years. That was all I did. And that's all I knew how to do. Um, and so when you took the booze away, now I'm really into depressions without the booze. Mm-hmm. I needed something. I needed something to hold on to. So it's like, you know, there's the yamas and niyamas in yoga. There's the eightfold path in Buddhism. There's the Ten, the ten Commandments in uh, Christianity. I'm not sure. There's Biggie's Ten Crack Commandments, if you want to call it. <laughs> but it's a very uh, wonderful piece of literature. <laughs> but it was like the ethics really held me down, you know, like... Uh, I've, I've kind of stopped swearing, which is like, has been a two year battle for me. Um, I had to realign the way that I was working, you know, like, uh, right work, right speech, just like simple things, you know, like don't get super angry and tell that person to F off because there's this karmic path that's going to come with that. So Ooh. let's just restrain from that. Let's talk it out with somebody. And like, let's resolve it. You know, it's like, it seems like a childish thing in a way. But when I first got in, I didn't know how to, I don't know, unless it was music. And even my music, I I mean, I was in the music business, which is like, no, like cutthroat. I'm getting paid this F you, you know what I mean? And it's just like, so I had to help rewire. It's pretty crazy how 
you, we were talking a little bit about this a few, a couple of weeks ago on an episode, but that when you say like, if you're going to stop drinking, there needs to be, you were, it's, it was Buddhism. Mm. And I couldn't help but think about, um, Indiana Jones when he's like swapping, when he does the swap with the sandbag. Oh yeah. <laughs> Like in oh, the, swaps in the the, uh, yeah, yeah so and it's the, like he's it got to do it immediately, thing, yeah. and it has to do it like right. it has to be the perfect weight, and he has to swap it in just the right way, and it's like because you you can't just drop you can't just drop something like a like a drinking like a bad drinking habit mm-hmm. that has so much influence over so many aspects of your life, mm. and then and then just replace it with nothing. Like it's got to be replaced, yeah. and it's got to be replaced with something that reminds you that the other thing was not helping you. Mm. And, and if, and if you just drop something, the, the likelihood of that, of, of just, of just cutting something off cold. I mean, the likelihood of of relapse on that has got to be like through the roof Mm. because you don't have that support because you don't have that support that replaces it. Yeah. Or, or the light or the likelihood of like the likelihood of not, I, and maybe maybe this is maybe this is stepping a little bit away from from the addiction side of things, but I think that I think that what you just say, said there, Taylor, is, is kind of true to to most things in life, right? It's like most things in life that might not be healthy. Even even um, you could even think about it as like in terms of relationships, you know. And 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 so to to not properly um, you know to do it that way, and and then not learn from what was unhealthy about that relationship right. by just like by again sort of um mindlessly going from one into the into another you know without without mm-hmm. thought mm-hmm. um yeah it's really it's really interesting i mean i remember when i was when i was uh uh probably 19 maybe and i tried to be veggie for the first time and uh and like tried to just be really like really tried to still? just be really still, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just like right. lay yeah, on the yeah, couch yeah. for months at a time. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I and I didn't do anything. Like I didn't replace. I didn't replace what I stopped eating with with anything. And right, like how long did that last? Then you were just eating <laughs> French months. fries. You were just, just eating French fries. It was like yeah, two yeah. or three two or three months of feeling like a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like unless you unless you know that you have to replace that with something, it's just not going to work. But um, it's it's. It's the the drinking is just one it's just one thing. I I mean I know we we talk about alcoholism, we talk about AA, but it's really more the behaviors and the patterns in the mind. This is where Buddhism and yoga comes in is because I needed to rewrite the script of my thought patterns, you know, my samskaras, my karmas. I I had to work from that level because I don't just drink because I feel great and I want to black out every day. I, I drink because my there's things that aren't programmed right in my mind. I have wrong patterns. I have wrong views and perceptions of the world. And I needed to rewrite those. And I needed a path to do it. And, the you know, Buddhism was one. The 12 steps really helped. But, you know, when we talk about things like getting molested when you're a kid, for instance, that sets in motion hundreds if not thousands if not millions of patterns of fear and anxiety and all of these things that i don't know even exist right Mm -hmm. i mean i didn't even really look i didn't even remember this happen i remembered it a few times in my life and then i would just get drunk and i would forget again 
But until I sat down and wrote out my step four, which is where you write down your resentments, I never even really considered that that had played a role in my life. Right. You know, I just thought I was crazy. So yeah. I like there was a lot of things. And then, you know, when I keep moving down the steps, it's like, well, how are we going to take care of these root issues like getting molested? And somebody turns to me and says, well, you have to use forgiveness. It's the only way. Mm. So then it's like, all right, well, now I've got way more research to do. Mm -hmm. How do you forgive somebody who's, yes, molested you multiple times when you were a kid, but in turn has affected the entire course of your life? Mm -hmm. You know, so it was yoga and Buddhism that showed me that true nature that's within all of us. That's the root Mm -hmm. that is within every human being. And they have experienced things in their life and they have some scars, which are like, as you guys know, the patterns the patterning in the minds of everything that's ever happened, you know. Nobody goes out and becomes uh, a child molester with great intentions. There's no way that that person is not suffering in some way. Yeah. So, like, just for example, Buddhism helped me see it that way to move me towards forgiveness so that I could let go, not to condone the action. Mm. Not to say, oh, it's okay. I mean, I'm in. I'm talking to the police right now about that exact case, mm. um, because I think people have to be held accountable for their actions. You have to be compassionate for all the other children who might be out there if this person has not gotten help. You know. Yeah. But when we're yeah. talking about God or the higher power, I, for me, that's this is like really where I started to see it work. When somebody's like, "You have to forgive," I'm like, "Well, you can put this person in jail." Yes. But that's not going to resolve it within me. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. The goal here is to stop drinking. So I have to root up what is causing the drinking in the first place, you know? Yeah. It so, reminds me of, um, I was, uh, I went to my first therapy session the other day and, and my therapist was describing to me what trauma is and how trauma manifests in different people's lives. Mm-hmm. And she said something that changed my perspective on what trauma is. And she said that, Trauma is not an experience. It's not an, ev- it's not an event that happens. Trauma is how that, fe- that experience manifests in your body and how you carry that. So like even in your nerves and that like, you know, if you feel anxiety and there's tightness in your chest, like trauma is that. Trauma mm. is the aftermath of the event that mm. happens. And I never thought of it that because thought of it that way because I always thought that trauma was an event and you're just trying to understand why the event happened, not the aftermath or after effects of, of what it's actually done to you as a person. Right. So um, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that because it's, it's only in the last couple of days that my perspective has shifted on that. Mm. Um, but what I wanted to uh, come to Jay was that you've, you, you talk about your, your journey of recovery and like starting to take things like even like Buddhism uh, seriously. And it seems like and on, on one hand, you're doing all these things to make yourself better. You're, you're ticking these boxes and you're, you're making this, this, this intense effort to, to, to basically save your own life. And when you were telling that story, I was kind of imagining this like epic montage of you doing all of these like healthy things for yourself. But it, I know that it's not just about ticking the boxes, it's about the result of how you end up feeling about life and about yourself mm. afterwards. So what is the end result and being conscientious that 
it's a, it's almost a never ending journey. Yeah. With with all of the effort that you've put into um, unpacking these experiences, to discovering a, a higher power, to creating these healthier habits, what is the end result and how you experience the world now? Mm. Uh, I mean, my life is like way better. I, I'm, it's like unexplainable, you know. I thought I, sobriety did, and I know a lot of people say this, but I thought sobriety was going to be really boring. Um, <laughs> but it's like I, I am still in the middle of it. Like I have not, I'm not, I can't sit here and say like you know. I, I did a, I did a massage training thing to test my and to work with people touching me who don't know me and uh this wasn't like a crazy long time ago and the woman who was massaging me uh, she had her hand on my right hand and i was like can you feel how tight my right hand is and she was like yeah i really can and i could not release the tension out of my right hand i couldn't do it at any point i was ready to just grab her like i was i was just waiting but it wasn't like conscious you know so it's Mm -hmm. not it's I don't want to make it sound like I'm out of the forest. Recovery, Buddhism, and yoga are not something um, that I see as like work that I do. It's it's the life that I have to live in order to maintain the sobriety and the quality of life that I want to eventually live. I, I see... I'm starting to see a little bit more compassionately. I did <coughs> use forgiveness to work with that uh, childhood sex abuse. I, my practice of meditation was to sit, picture that man's face. I did this for three months, twice a day, and just essentially like hurl phrases of forgiveness at the visualization of his face. <laughs> mm. And wow. that was difficult. But I, I started to learn there that, oh, you really can change your perspective. You can change how things work. But I'm constantly like, I still get tired sometimes because I'm constantly watching my mind. I'm just waiting for it, you know. I always say there's no side deals with God. It's like the path is clearly laid out for you, Jay. Now you have a choice whether you follow that path or don't. Uh, And as I get deeper into yoga, I'm seeing more the play of the thinking mind and the the self-will. Um kind of working with that God will, that higher will, you know? It's like even in that forgiveness example, like I know that I should be forgiving this person in order to let this go, using all the theories and stuff that I've learned. But my mind is still like, nah, F that guy, you know? Like I want to beat him with a baseball bat. Like it's still, it's like that opinion is still there in the background. of course. Um, It's just, I'm kind of thankful for addiction because I know what happens if I feed that. And that can be something like that thought, or it can be a daily thought of something happening and me being like, oh, this person did this, and now I'm angry about that. It's like, I mean, I can think that, and I'll get away with it, but that can turn into like a week of like me just battling with Torture. my own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys know yeah. what it's like. You know, yeah. this, is, this is not um, something addicts just deal with, or I just yeah. deal with. This is like yeah. human stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, all of this resonates, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and it's yeah. just... So I see life better as long as I'm connected. Um, so I have to work to be connected. You know, I practice every morning yeah. uh, for like two hours to get my day lined up. And yeah. 
it's it is paying. I mean, it does pay off for sure. You know, you you might have. I mean, you might have touched on this within that um, that that answer, but um, I have a, I have a, a sort of two part question here that I want to throw at you before we wrap up here. Mm-hmm. Which uh, the first one is what what would you say <clears throat> is the biggest thing that <clears throat> your your struggles with with addiction and alcoholism? Uh, what would you say is the biggest thing that that's taken away from you? Like what has quitting taken away from you? What has what has alcoholism? What's the biggest thing that alcoholism has taken away from you? Oh man, uh, probably living presently and fully for ten years of my life. To oppose that is that the amount that that has taught me now. Like I would never, I would never have learned these things. I would never be here talking to you. I wouldn't even be alive. You know, I, when I got into recovery, man, it was like, it was day by day, hour by hour. Like I was done, you know? So yeah, it it really did eat up 10 years of my life. It ate up me feeling anything, me learning how to have a relationship. I've hurt a lot of people, like no doubt. Um, I've made amends to as many as I can. I mean, a lot still don't want to talk to me. Um, and that's that's okay. That's a choice, you know. I did a lot of dumb stuff. I would say that's kind of what it really, really took away from me. I'm, my health, physical health, has mostly recovered. I still have this thing in my stomach sometimes uh, from binging wine. It's like an acid thing. Um, and my memory is a little bit wacky sometimes. But I, that also plays into trauma as well. What would you say is the biggest thing that your struggles with alcoholism has given you? <laughs> yeah. I think I'd say that after death, there's a rebirth if you can stay alive. So it's like given me a chance to live a new way, to serve other people, um, and to see the world a different way. It's, it's like I, I'm a, I live a different life, and I, I look through different classes, mm. let's say. And without extreme things happening, I, I don't think that would ever have happened for me. Well, I want to say thanks, man, because I think that this conversation uh, most certainly has helped a lot of people see the world a different way just through hearing your your story, your struggles, your, your ups and your downs. And uh, I want to say personally, like deep down, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and be so open and so um so selfless in the way that you've you've shared because it really does mean mean the world to us cool thank you guys for having me thanks, yeah, thanks me, a lot um and listen thank you all so much for listening um this podcast would not be possible if it wasn't for you our listeners and if you want to do us a favor so that more people can hear important conversations like this, you can uh, follow us on Spotify or go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review and hit the subscribe button. Um, uh, furthermore, if you want to support us even more, uh, you can go to our Patreon. 
patreon.com slash sickboy. Um, we love our Patreon community. You guys are incredible. We've got our weekly hangouts. You get uh, free access with your uh, contribution to our digital live shows. And uh, you really help make the uh, the podcast turn around. So thank you to everybody who has uh, become a patron. Uh, patreon.com slash sickboy. And as always, a huge thank you to our manager, Jeff Lonis, to our co-producer, uh, Lauren Sankey, and to our sound designer, Donovan, the Meerkat Morgan. Um, Donovan, thanks so much for I feel like a, a bit of grounding at the end of this episode would be really nice. So mm. maybe if before we throw to the outro, you could just play us like maybe a minute of like really low chill, like meditative music here and yeah, everybody Donovan, just, just make on... just make a minute's worth of music for us for <laughs> the end make, of the show just, thanks man just as you do on a weekly basis just a minute of meditative you know what, Donovan, music here. just to make it easier just play us out to that we don't even need the final music just play yeah, us out to some and... yeah, just just uh just compose a song and that'll be the end of the, the episode actually a nice, well, a nice i was thinking song. you could i was thinking you could play a minute of meditative music here and then play us out to a brand new song that is just more tailored to the outro of this episode. That would be really oh, great. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> so just Donovan, two songs. And, and everybody like else who's listening right now. We're going to pay more this month than we usually do. So If you're ah. listening and you just want to take... I challenge you if you're still listening at this point of the podcast. <laughs> actually, just take a minute here just to focus on your breath and, uh, and connect there with you yourself a little bit. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I was thinking we'd start a yoga class before we wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy, and this is Simple. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.